0: We're in uh, the third week of a series, last week of a series called Calling All Peacemakers. And if, uh, if you've been around, you're familiar with that. And if you haven't been, welcome. We've been reminding ourselves why at this particular time, uh, peace, the recovery of peace, the, the ability to make it seems really, really important. David Brooks uh, <laughs> wrote this. Next slide, next slide, half of my Facebook feed is someone linking to a video with the headline, Watch X, Demolish Y. And uh, it's not just on social media but in the media and maybe even in some of our conversations The polarization, our, our difficulty in handling difference, those who are different us uh, seems to at this particular moment to be just raging and so we've been reminding ourselves of Jesus's big ideas and the way of peace and we've summarized it this way enemies love them violence renounce it money share it foreigners welcome them sinners forgive them power and love and and, and peace is, in many ways is kind of a, a, a whole summary of the way of Jesus and Paul writes to uh, the church in Rome. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so we see the way of Jesus is a call, not just for Jesus, but for us to embody and for us to enact. So we've been looking at this vocation that all of us are called to be peacemakers. Uh, We looked at the idea of the circle where we often choose sides. God calls us to create circles. And so for all of us, this is this is the call of Jesus, the vocation of being a peacemaker. And so it seemed fitting then on this third uh, Sunday of the series as we've been looking at peacemaking and, and with, with Peter's uh, kind of last formal Sunday here to do a bit of an interview with Peter. It took some work to talk him into this, but he's here. And uh, and it just seems so right because when, when we look at Peter's life, his, his vocation has been one of peacemaking. And so the goal this morning is to hear a bit from Peter's life, not as an end to itself, that's not what Peter would want, uh, but for us then to consider, well, how is God calling and inviting me to be a peacemaker in my uh, world. And so that's, that's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at the vocation of being peacemaker and keep sharpening that focus. One of my favorite things to do with Peter is to hear stories of his childhood and his background. Um, and he, he's got, I think, a really interesting upbringing and for, for formative experiences. So uh, one of the clear things when you tell stories about your childhood or being a teenager is there's a a high level of difference. You've navigated all kinds of difference, racial, economic, uh, geographic, lots of difference. So tell us a little bit about uh, uh, some of those differences, the range of difference you've experienced. Yes. Um, well, uh,
1: my parents gave me a very interesting gift uh, when I later in life ran into people who were interested in following the gospel and they heard about how I grew up, they were always like, wow, and, and you're okay. Like, we're, we're thinking of doing that to our kids. So uh, my parents, James and Virginia LeGrand, uh, I'm just going to focus on high school because it kind of gives a, a glimpse into uh, a bit of the, my picture growing up. So when I was 13, we moved to the south side of Chicago uh, in the Woodlawn area. Uh, and I went to a high school about 2,000 people, 3% of which were white, so I was a very visible minority. There were more homeless students in my high school than white students. Uh, It was, uh, the claim to fame of that high school is that it was the high school R. Kelly dropped out of. That was like how they were going. So it was a very interesting uh, place and wide spectrum of of socioeconomic people had had students that were friends that were homeless and uh, one friend whose mother was a US senator who they they lived at the top of a a building, a penthouse, and she was always in Washington. So we'd get up to no good there. Uh, And at that time also went to a church that was all Mandarin speaking. So they literally, like after our second Sunday, they brought in a translator to translate things into English for me and my parents. Uh, And then after two years of that moved uh, to Gary, Indiana, which at that time was the murder capital of the United States. Uh, So just to give, uh, it was about when we moved there, there were 91 per hundred thousand uh, population murders every year, so that's about 50 times that of Vancouver, or three times that of Chicago now. Uh, and went to then a private, little private Christian, all-white school, where I was part of the visible uh, minority, and it was Christian, but very um, just discriminatory uh, racially. So. Uh, lots of people wearing Confederate flag t-shirts and things like that. So uh, those are the, the populations I was, I was a part of. So I was able to experience what it's like to be a visible minority, which is strange for a white guy in North America. Um, and also what it's like to be
0: part of the visible majority but not feel at all uh, part of that narrative. Yeah. One of the things you do a lot when we talk about your background is you talk about your parents a lot, Virginia and James, and it's clear you've, you've caught a lot of things, love of reading from both parents, but your mom and, uh, but your dad, James, is a minister. So tell us a little bit about what you observed in his life, how he spoke truth to power. Um, what, what did you glean from James?
1: Yeah, um, my dad was one of these people who, I think probably a lot of people's parents here, I've heard stories, he's a person who tried to follow the call of Jesus in his life. Uh, it, it was that simple, but that call led him to very just kind of wild places. Uh, he was an upper class uh, kid from Grand Rapids, Michigan who decided to uh, become a missionary, then a pastor. He ended up in um, in sort of what, what was known as the ghetto in Chicago in the late 60s uh, and kind of forced the denomination he was a part of uh, to, to integrate their schools, which got him death threats and police intimidation and all sorts of wild stuff. Uh, and then later on in life, um, in Halifax, that's where I was born, he um, worked for, to push the denomination he was part of to have uh, women in office. So he uh, did that and helped start a co-op and uh, worked to get the denomination, which was a Dutch denomination, to break ties with the Um, Church of South Africa, which was pro-apartheid, so just kind of a, you know, these were all in a sense little logical things that he just followed up on, but they turned to big things. So one of the, my dad died a year and a half ago and I was able to go to his funeral and it was really beautiful to see all these people come from his different parishes uh, to honor him. So you had like the butlers from Chicago, this big uh, black matriarchal, family came to give blessing, they knew who I was, and then kind of the people who lived in trailers from Gary, Indiana came, some people came from Halifax, and uh, they all had different aspects of why they thought my dad was really great.
0: You can start to see some of the themes, even of what we were talking earlier about, of sharing things we are grateful and appreciate about Peter and how those have been woven into his vocation through his parents tell tell just as we're on on James Legrand still tell, share a little bit about James's vision of church because that seems to me to also have really shaped you and why why you've been so committed to the church so talk a little bit about that yeah uh, one of the <clears throat> strange gifts
1: of uh, so m- we knew my dad was going to die and it might go quickly and uh, so in 2012 I I went I brought Moses when he was really little and went and visited my dad and uh, he was He was still like with it enough to be able to talk and kind of converse well, took more time, but did a series of interv- interviews with him wanted to give him a chance to to talk about what he he thought of or saw as the mission of his life in his own words and it was It was a really beautiful time and uh, he could do about like a half hour a day and and for him, he was adamant that it was all related back to this this reading when he was in seminary of, of Exodus, uh, in Exodus 12, when, when uh, Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and it says, and a mixed multitude went up with them. And this is the earliest time when it's seen that the God's vision for humanity is not just for the Israelites, it's for all people. And and so my dad was like, the church has to be all tribes and nations, or it is not the church. And he was, that, that was the number one thing that he wanted, you know. He, his memory was already going at that time, so every day he kept coming back to it and pushing. This this has to be, you have to have all the body in the church, or it's not the church.
0: Love it. So having that then as the background, your upbringing, uh, your parents, uh, let's shift now to your recent work. You've been working in the downtown east side since 2006. So share a little bit then, how did you, you've, you've been in Geary, you've been and a lot of time in Michigan and Halifax. How did you end up uh, in the downtown east side? What led you to working here?
1: Yeah, well, like many people uh, in their late 20s, I didn't know what to do with my life. And um, when that happens, you go to grad school, right? So uh, I went to Regent and um, toyed with the idea of uh, pastoral vocation. And pretty soon at Regent, I was like, oh, man, no way. And um, I was still confused and just kept soldiering on, done with Regent, and at that point I had spent years talking and writing and listening about Jesus and really longed to shut up and not talk anymore. And so I got done with Regent, I rode my bike to the downtown east side and I applied for jobs and I got a job in a coffee shop.
0: Tell us a little bit about the list because you've done a lot of different kinds of jobs here. Give us a list.
1: Yeah, I got a list here. So I was a bartender at the Dodson pub, which no longer exists. Not a nice bar, there's, yeah, not a good bar. Uh, a Coffee shop worker, um, community garden, I started a community garden, uh, did home support, so cleaning people's rooms in SRO hotels. Uh, worked at the bank, at Pigeon Park Bank, which is a little uh, banking um, bank in the downtown east side. I was a mental health worker, I still am. A coffee shop manager, I kind of renovated a coffee shop and um, have done memorials. Did building management for a while and a tenant support worker.
0: It's this kind of background, you start to see why I wanted Peter to be on this team. Uh, All this history in the the downtown east side. And I'm really grateful that you've brought all that and that we've had the season, you know, at the Rickshaw, and then now here at Japanese Hall and, and, and living in the neighborhood. I'm really grateful for uh, what a few people have, have mentioned, but just your, your coaching and, and getting to see the neighborhood through your eyes and getting to learn from, from your experience of, of being here. So I count that as one of your big gifts to us, certainly to me, uh, over this time. So I'm, I'm grateful for all of that. And, and I know that uh, your your love for this neighborhood, certainly it makes sense as we've looked at your upbringing and your parents, but it's also theologically informed, and there's a passage of scripture you wanted to make sure that we looked at, the, prod- the story of the, the prodigal son and how that relates to your work, and uh, you wanted me to read that, what if you read it? Yeah, read it. You, i it, it. well, well. It's your last Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so this is Luke 15. Going along, boss. Uh, Verse 11 here. uh, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Jillian, is there? There's a
1: picture in there of a family picture. No, uh, the next one. So um, the guy in the red pants—that's me. <laughs> I'm the younger son, and so I think my propensity reading, hearing the prodigal son stories—you know, feeling like the younger son welcome back and and all that—and um, I think that that there's nothing wrong with that read, but I and these are not my words, but I, I think that a big part of that passage for me now is like being an older son in recovery. Uh, and that is to say, it is so hard, it, it is a great gift to meet Jesus, to be forgiven of your sins, to feel welcomed in and absolved. Uh, and then to look upon others and have joy to see others being forgiven is a task that requires, requires grace. And at the heart of, like, peacemaking is being able to rejoice and enjoy other people and, and, and want them to flourish and to be happy if they are forgiven all their squanderings. Right? So the older brother, that is a feeling I think everyone knows this, like, why should they get off? I've been working hard. Everyone who's ever been to a church or done setup for more than two weeks in a row uh, knows this feeling. Why am I here late? Those that that I've seen that guy like five times. He's never done setup. Uh, so, to be an older son in recovery uh, is the call for me. And um, often, being in the downtown east side, uh, or being anywhere, but being in a, in places where you're going against this idea that you know. Society sells us this script that people are valuable if they have value to society. People are valuable if they're contributing members. And then we have this opposite script that we read in the Bible, which is we have value because we are created by God. And people who are created by God have value. And this is the script that we uh, hear from, from prophets. This is the script that We hear from Henry Nouwen and Jean Vanier who say people, even people who are are disabled, are full members and full of value. And so for me, that's been part of my learning in in being alive really is to um, try as best I can to get the eyes of that father, the eyes of God, the eyes of Jesus when I look at others and to repent of my own uh, propensity towards
0: judgment and self-righteousness. Yeah, I think that comes through your character. Do we have more pictures that we get a look at now, or are those for later?
1: I think they're, yeah.
0: Oh, one thing I was supposed to talk about, my dad wore this Roman
1: collar that started when, this is us in Halifax, that's me as a baby, and uh, my dad wore this Roman collar all his life, started off because they lived in the ghetto in Chicago, and they were the only white family, and he could wear that, and it was like a badge, so he could go to, like he wouldn't get beat up. And it was the cheapest thing he could get, and they didn't get paid much. So, for all of his life, he wore the Roman collar. Did
0: Were you ever into swimming?
1: <laughs> There's I uh, I don't know if you can pick out who I am, but the swim team at my high school in Chicago had a higher ratio of white guys. It was kind of like where the white guys went. <laughs> and um, one of those guys is me in there, so...
0: Okay, bottom row, third from the right, the one with the attitude there. Yeah, <laughs> looking a little sultry. <laughs>
1: Can give you an idea of like what my high school is like. So it was a high school of 2,000 people. That was our pool. <laughs> it had no diving board because someone broke it, and so they just cemented over it. <laughs> and so the guy next to me, uh, closer to the edge, Johnny, that was our diver. He had a huge pot belly, and he only got to practice diving when we were at meets, so we'd go to these, I, if anyone's been to swimming world, it's a very white world. So we were strange enough, but then Johnny was our diver. It was unbelievable.
0: <laughs> let's let's uh, switch gears to your season with Artisan. And I think it was it the fall of 2013. <coughs> yeah. We went out for breakfast. Yeah. And we... November. Was it? Nof- November. November 20, see he'll, he remembers these kinds of things. And, and we had a breakfast there, and and dreamed about what if, what if uh, you came over and helped artisan plant a new a new congregation. And I remember you reflecting on because you you'd had a break from church, and so this new experience of coming down to the Vancouver Public Library when we met there, and this you were coming in with fresh eyes of of coming into a gathering like this. And I remember you saying that. One of the things you most valued was I got to I got to get in your words was standing in a room with people saying words together, which is such a Peter type of phrase. Um, but you you liked that sense of standing together and with a group, kind of pledging allegiance to the kingdom of God, to to uh, the importance of that. Um, and out of people I know, you I would say without a doubt you have one of the I guess um, most highest view of church. You you hold a lot of respect for the importance of church. So what else would you add to the list? Besides, uh, you know, standing in a room with people saying words together. Why does church matter to you?
1: Yeah, well, I found this quote by St. Augustine to start with, uh, which is, and you can say this because it's St. Augustine, the church is a whore, but she's my mother. uh, Which gets at like the bit of the tension of loving church Uh, you love I love church and church is um, you know full of hypocrites and it's got this sordid past and it continues to do very strange things uh, electing strange people and things like that Uh, and nevertheless this the church and and the beauty and power of it is is It's just an amazing thing, Uh, standing together and saying words, uh, a place you can go where you can meet uh, people of diversity. Those places are less and less. Uh, The grocery store maybe is the last place where you're going to see people that are different than you. And even there, you have to kind of have money to pay. Church is one of the last places you go into. Church is the society Jesus worked to make, uh, you know, with followers who are like, government bureaucrats and zealots who wanted to end government. Um, Going to church for me and being faithful to church is so important because it's a way to reorient myself to God and to reorient myself away from thinking that I hold, um, I know what is right, capital right. Uh, It's a way to come together with other broken people around a broken body and um, submit and to admit my own lack of knowledge Um, And in church we hear a truth and we can know a truth that it's impossible to know alone. You can only get at the truth of Christ and the truth of God through the body of the church.
0: One of my favorite things about you is your plain speech. That You'll often say things really straight and direct. And I remember when we were planting this next congregation, it was really important to you. You kept using this phrase, worship of God. And I thought I knew what you meant, and then I wasn't sure. And uh, and then it, it became clear that it was really, it was a big value to you that what we do here ultimately is for God first, not for us. And that was a really important thing. And so I've learned to pay attention to some of your phrases, and, and not assume that I know what you mean. Um,
1: it's really interesting to hear. I get this picture of a guy who's kind of belligerent and slightly tipsy when you talk about <laughs> what I seem like to you.
0: Worship of God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Worship. Yes. Okay. E- exactly. Just to be clear. So l- let's just do. Let's do a
1: few more. Okay. Prayer. Uh, Jesus was a person of prayer. Taught prayer. In Matthew six. Uh, prayer, really fundamental in my early experience of being a Christian, uh, and probably still to this day, like somewhat allergic to Christian society, and so spent have spent many times listening to sermons just praying for my own conversion, and that I would not judge the preacher, love your sermons, um, uh, but found prayer as such a useful tool to get over myself, uh, get into myself, and to allow God to do work. Yeah. Unceded territory. Um, this is n- not my thing, but such an important thing. Um, important for the context, for the history of the church, this place, who we are, what the church has done, uh, but acknowledging, um, yeah, just the, the, the uh, that we as Christians understand that there's a world bigger um, than ourselves, and that God is over that whole world. So this is a word you use a lot, conversion. Uh, yeah, I love the image of um, talking once uh, with some friends, and someone had the, the idea of a picture of the narrow path not being like a path apart from people, but a path through people going one way. So if the whole crowd is going this way, and then you're trying to go this way, that's maybe the narrow path that Christ calls us to. And if you're... Going against you, you always get turned around, and con- conversion is just being open to being re, returned, retuned by Jesus. Love that, Jesus. Um, yeah, uh, the Christ, God incarnate, confounder, joy bringer, laugher, partier, prayer, weeper, walker, um, peacemaker, warrior. Uh, one of my friends wrote a song where he talks about. Jesus, when Jesus comes over to your house as the guest, it turns out that he's the host in the end. And it's this beautiful image that Jesus, yeah, it's just this constant confounder. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus is the guest sort of, but then becomes the host when they sit down, they know him.
0: I want to talk briefly about our, our relationship and uh, those who know us know that we're friends and we... We get along quite well and we enjoy each other, but I love the phrase you used the other day, and it was, well, this relationship, this has not been a conflict-free friendship. Uh, and I love that phrase. This has not been a, Hi, shalom. This has not been a conflict-free relationship, and uh, which is so true. And early on when Peter uh, joined us, I I think you were assuming we were getting along too well, and he he has a place in Point Roberts, and and it was his idea that him and I would go to Point Roberts and have a retreat. You made a mixtape for the drive down there, and. Uh, <laughs> CD. A CD, mixed CD. And the, the whole point was that we were going to go down there and fight, that we were going to engage some sort of conflict and then we could reconcile and then our friendship would be real. Because I, I, I had the sense that you just didn't believe this. And so I don't know if we really fought in PR, but we later did have a fight and we had a long conversation in the, the parking lot of IKEA. And we've, uh, we've learned a few things in the context of this friendship. Even now, as you've stepped down, this, this last uh, month or so hasn't been easy. It's taken a lot of communication and talk and face-to-face. And so I know you're a person who is, uh, has no problem with conflict. In fact, you sometimes seem to enjoy it. You see, you see it as necessary. Um, so I guess the question would be, what, what have we learned? What have we learned in this uh, friendship that's not conflict-free? What have we learned about making peace?
1: Yeah, I, it brings to mind a phrase from a, um, an author, Kaim Potok, who says, you can't touch the soul of another man through the telephone. And I think uh, relationships take conflict and in order to get to that conflict you need proximity. You need you need to be face-to-face in unstructured time. And there's no there's just no shortcut for that. So, I think part of I remember that point Roberts, and um, you know one of the things that you are so good at is keeping a lot of things spinning in the air and and just having a vision for this church and things and going and one of the things that's a tension is to get you away from those plates mm. to get you fully present and and you know that tension is in you and I think trying to get you to point one of the this, this place in point Roberts cell phones don't work, so you can't you can't spin the plates. And so and, and then later on in our relationship when we had conflict, I remember talking to you, and, and a lot of the conflict came down to we were we were emailing and telephoning and we weren't face to face. And as soon as we could be in the same place for an hour, and we could both cry and say, We love Je- I love you, I love Jesus, you know, and you can work it out. And that that, that work of reconciliation takes proximity. There's just no shortcut to that. That's
0: really well said and and it's a very kind way of saying I'm on my phone too much, so I appreciate (laughs) your kindness to me. Um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace and that phrase, make every effort, it seems to indicate this takes work, this takes intentionality, this vocation of peacemaking is not easy. Bearing with one another in love, humility, gentleness. So what do you hear in that phrase, make every effort? What are you hearing?
1: Yeah, it's so, so comprehensive. Um, making every effort is infinite and means you can never just... Um, Condemn or let it be black and white. Um, let it rest. Making every effort is the, the good father, longing, longing, the good shepherd who chases, the God who, who pursues us. It. Uh, when I was thinking about this question, uh, this there's a quote from Toni Morrison in her book Beloved. Um, and, and the quote is, love is or it ain't. Thin love ain't love at all. And, and I think there's a, a trueness to that. There's like love makes every effort. Uh, and, and this is a, a tall order. It's an impossible order. It's an order we fail unless we do so uh, with God. Uh, but to do this, to, n- to not give up, to not condemn, uh, it means that you are never indifferent to another human.
0: Yeah, and that's something I really see in you is... I think that's actually i hadn't thought of this before, but that's a really good verse for for you you're you are one who makes every effort and i would, I see you as someone who does hard things on purpose and you're you're willing to to do that relationally um, yeah, as it's been mentioned already the way you serve the way you engage the way you initiate with people you're you're a man who makes every effort and uh I savor that about you. Two last questions for us as we as we transition to the table, but two, two questions for Peter, for the rest of us. Uh, Peter, as your role of being a pastor among Artisan Church now comes to an end, what is one thing you want this church to know?
1: That's um, um, I want this church and everyone in this church to know uh, that God loves you. And that that's a, that's a simple phrase, and we can forget the implications of it, or the depth of it. But it means there's a God, an all-powerful being, uh, and it means that that powerful being is a benevolent being who loves, who is pulling for you. The creator of the universe is interested in you and made you on purpose. Uh, and there is a you, and that's hard, because there's just going to be a you. And so that's lonely. But it's a loneliness in which there is a God who has a plan for you. So that, that is the the one resounding message that, that I think we should all be hit
0: with. Yeah, right on. Last question. What is one hope that you have for this church in the next season? Uh, I would hope that... This church
1: would be in, become increasingly diverse to the onlooker. So if someone looked in the window outside and they, they looked in at us, they would be like, that is a weird group of people that should not be together. That's ridiculous. And they'd walk away and just be like, that's no. And, and to anyone inside, uh, it would just feel like this makes all the sense. Wow, these are my brothers and sisters. And so I, my, vi- my prayer is that that continues uh, to grow, that is here, and the seeds are here, but that the the spirit would continue to um, cause that to flourish
0: yeah thanks peter for for this, and hopefully there 's something here for all of us that we can can latch on and remember as we live into our own vocations of being peacemakers there 's lots here from Peter that we can that we can glean, and so hopefully this has been uh, helpful. It's been good to, to hear you and, and to uh, just enjoy your story and your, your own particularity um, as a peacemaker. And so we're going to come to the table now as uh, Peter's already reminded us that we come as broken people and at the center is a broken body um, and that God's work in the world is to make whole including us. So let's come to the table.